Welcome back to This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. That's right, we're still here. Where we try not to rate what we watched this week while talking full spoilers. That's right, but there is a bit of a competition here where we try to not earn points in the This Film Not Rated gauntlet. Try and get out alive, and at the end of the season, the person with the fewest points wins. In fact, if you get out with no points, you will be marked on the not rated Hall of Fame as someone who has accomplished the near impossible being objective about a movie. But the real reason we're here, Curtis, what did you watch this week? Uh, this week, uh, I watched three movies, uh, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, Pompo, The Cinephile, which is an anime film that came out recently, and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So we're obviously not going to talk about Doctor Strange. <laughs> <laughs> completely not yeah why would we do that but uh what did you watch this week well curtis i watched star wars episode two attack of the clones twice you must really like that torture um well speaking of torture what i've been doing lately to cope with a lot of uh, minor disappointments and things is watching a lot of mid-2000s trash horror movies mm-hmm. and so uh, a couple of the ones that I watched include the Fog remake from 2005. Oh. Here, here's what you're getting today, folks. You're going to get Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Okay? The most horrific Star Wars movie. I'm kidding, mm-hmm. but we'll move on to that. Anyway. And then I'm guessing then, Curtis, we're going to talk about... Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. So... Hang in there, because then you'll get to talk about a cult fan favorite. Then we're going to talk about possibly one of the worst horror remakes ever. It's very notorious. And then we're going to talk about, they're talking about the first supposed Marvel horror movie. That is the second lowest rated user review movie. I double checked after another article popped up. All right. Um, You know, online. So... This it's a that's a polarizing movie. So I'm very sorry either you people are listening to this because you are like I need to hear the controversy over the movies that people are polarized around or you're here because you like self abuse. I I hope that Nicolas Cage can save us. Oh, you know what I learned this uh you know what I learned this this year this, this year this week what you learned this week. Uh, Nicolas Cage is Chris Stuckman's self-reported favorite actor. Okay. Yeah. Fun fact. I want to watch um, Face Off and Broken Arrow, I think is the name of it. But um, I don't know. I, I just I have other movies by him I need to see. I've never even seen The Rock all the way through. But uh, yeah, Nicolas Cage. We'll be excited about that. Am I trying to stop us from talking about this? I'm pretty sure you are. Yeah, because I have to start off with some controversy, and I'm very fortunate that in this season we decided not to get buzzed because I'm going to get all the opinions, okay? (laughs) Well, uh, with that being, well, let's just go ahead and get started with uh, Star Wars Episode 2, get that dumpster fire out of the way. Star Wars Episode 2 was one of my favorite movies when it came out. I was 12, um, I believe. I might have been 11. It was was around that that age frame, yeah. Um, And I was a mildly angry kid 
you know, like you'd be like kid, kid, slightly angry kid, kid, Eric, kid, you know, that kind of thing. So you just like fell in love with Anakin then. Well, Anakin Skywalker genuinely was appealing to me. Uh, especially because, you know, as a 10 year old, I was getting really into Star Wars. I was into the prequels as like a child and whatnot. And I was into the myth of the story of Obi-Wan and Anakin fighting on a lava planet and becoming Darth Vader all the way back then. Uh So I remember watching the teaser trailer for this on a television and seeing Anakin when he jumps off of that vehicle on Coruscant. And the way they made that aesthetic look made it look like there was lava cracks on the ground where the vehicles were. And I was like, oh, snap, is is he potentially going to turn into Darth Vader in this movie? And I remember seeing a special feature talking about how the middle point is the low point in the trilogy. And I doubly got excited for the concept that that was possible. And what I got was Yoda using a lightsaber. Here's the thing. You try and rewind the clocks and you try and think about what Star Wars was, was like for us, it was like watching a, a sort of myth unfold. So you're not sitting here thinking actively about it. You're just saying, tell me what happened next. And they go, this is what happened next. And you go, whoa. It's the same sort of mysticism that you got when Luke pulls out a green lightsaber and you don't know what that means. But you loosely in your brain associate it with like, oh, he must be a leveled up Jedi or a Jedi master or something, you know? Right. Right. It's in that mindset where you just accept that things are happening. Here's here's the deal. Star Wars Episode One has two fundamental problems that keep it from being able to be a movie that you can just enjoy. Um, number one is the dialogue writing and delivery of that dialogue. Right? Just the, the, the actual discourse, the actual interactions between the characters. Mm-hmm. Number two... Obi-Wan should have been in Qui-Gon's place. Okay? The thing about episode two is the big but simple problems that are in this movie are core to it even being a movie at all. And it is the romance between Anakin and Padme, as everyone else has said, Mm -hmm. and the relationship between Obi-Wan and Anakin. Yeah. Literally, these three movies are supposed to be the story of Anakin's fall and Obi-Wan trying to train him. And they literally try and make the whole point of his fall be based around his romance with Padme. And those are the two core things that they get wrong. You throw all the imagination up on screen you want. You throw Mace Windu chopping up people. You throw... Uh, a guy who looks like Boba Fett, but it's Jango Fett. You make him a clone. You have stormtroopers now. You do all of this stuff. But your story was supposed to be Anakin was being trained by Obi-Wan, his best friend, and began a romance that was a sub- beginning of his fall to the dark side. And those two things you got wrong. Now, here's why I, I agree with that. Uh, I can't watch the fireplace scene. That was the scene that we talked about last time as being the begging for sex scene. And that's what it is. Yeah. They, they mentioned it in the Plinkett reviews and I couldn't unsee it when I went back to watch it is that whole scene. They have the dinner scene where he floats a pair back and forth and just cut to them sitting in front of a fire where he immediately starts monologuing about how he's haunted by the fact that she kissed him and he's worried that she is going to resent it. And he says, he'll do anything that he'll ask if she'll be with him. 
and she's getting uncomfortable and literally squirming in front of them. And the excuse that she gives him is because she's a senator. And it is rightfully pointed out also in the Plinkett reviews that that doesn't mean anything. It should have been the other way around. It's it's another thing that they bring up in, in the Plinkett reviews. Padme should sh- should have been the one who was trying to pursue a- Anakin. And Anakin should have been the one who was ad- adamant about not breaking the Jedi code. Why does the Jedi code... This is the thing we talked about last time. The Jedi code includes... Because of an error, the Jedi Code now includes kidnapping toddlers, right? Why does the Jedi Code have to restrict people from having romantic relationships? I mean, right. But also the way the movies are presented, it, it's, it's presented in a way that makes the viewer believe that you are given the choice to willingly join the uh, Jedi. It's not that they're being kidnapped because they don't show it to because they don't show that to us. They, they don't explain it. It's never a thing. It's We see Anakin join the be a Jedi because he wants to be a Jedi. So that naturally tracks to, well, if, if you have the Metachlorian count to do so and you want to become a Jedi, you can join the Jedi Council and learn to be a Jedi. It was never a forceful thing when presented to us. No, but the restrictions, there's no need to have them. I mean, I agree that there's no need to have them uh, other than the, uh, the then, then that thing that, that Yoda says where uh, emotion leads... Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. So if you form emotional attachments with people and you lose them, it puts you at risk of going to the dark side. And yet even in in one of the most easily accessible deleted scenes from Attack of the Clones, you have Mace Windu walking with Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan saying, I'm worried that Anakin has too much of an emotional connection with Padme. And Mace Windu is just like, you just have to have faith. You'll choose the right path which is the exact answer that completely dismisses any need to restrict people from having romantic relationships. The whole point is as practice in it as being a Jedi, that if you're going to have an attachment with someone that puts you at risk of loss. And that is a part of the nature of the world. And if the force is what binds the world together, then just, it just, it just doesn't make any sense to have the rule there. I, I, I agree. It doesn't make sense to have the rule there, but the rule is there for the, for the sake of the movie. So here's the thing. So for the sake of the movie, this is what you get. This is Anakin and Padme's romantic relationship. She hasn't seen Anakin since he's 10. He immediately compliments her and she thinks, hi, you're still that little kid and tries to blow him off. Anakin argues with Obi-Wan in front of her. She seems concerned. She goes to sleep. Anakin saves her life. Then Anakin is assigned to escort her home And Anakin tries to take over her plans for how to hide on the planet and control her. And she doesn't like it. She shuts him down in front of the queen. She says, this is my home. You need to trust me. And he has to take a breath and be like, I'm sorry. He literally says later, I've given up trying to argue with you in like a snide comment in reaction to her. Uh. Um, (laughs) While she's packing, while she's packing to leave to Naboo, Anakin ramps up and complains into a tirade where he's almost yelling about how frustrated he is at Obi-Wan and she tries to calm him down. And then when she tries to calm him down, he gives her a look and she goes, don't look at me like that. And he goes, why not? And she's like, it makes me uncomfortable. The look that he gives her is intentionally, I'm going to do the opposite of what you say. And the thing is, it's supposed to be flirty, but someone's drawn a line in the sand that hard. The sand, (laughs) we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't cross that line. You should go like, I'm sorry. And like, look away or be shy or something, but you don't. So you get there, they go to a planet. The first second they have alone, he kisses her. 
And she shakes him off and she says, no, I shouldn't have done that. This isn't right. So they go and they have a picnic and they sit down and they have a picnic and they talk about politics. And then he goes and he surfs on weird tick buffalo. And he pretends to be injured to get her to get close to him so he can roll around on top of her. Yeah. No. He has been the creepiest human being on the face of the galaxy. But she's just like, oh, okay. And then you've had you've had no time. He has saved her from harm once. And he has neglected every single other thing from her. And he immediately goes into a, a launch about how he is so desperate to be with her intimately mm-hmm. that it's going to harm him if she says no. Guy's a regular Christian Grey. Dude, Christian Grey's got nothing on Anakin Skywalker. Okay? Anakin Skywalker is like an amateur manipulator because he's not good at hiding how manipulative he's being. You don't say to someone, it will hurt me if you don't do something to me. Right. Like that's just you should if you said that out loud and wrote it on a script and thought, yup, like you're wrong. <laughs> this is bad. Wait, wait, Eric, are you saying that George Lucas isn't the master scriptwriter that he thinks he is? Uh we'll get there. So so um Anakin immediately then, okay, after she rejects him, okay, quits his job has a nightmare about his mom and says, I know I'm supposed to protect you, but I'm sorry, I'm leaving. And she just agrees to go with him. So he goes there, he finds his mom, his mom's dead. He slaughters children and, 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 and women and goes to her and, and he says, this is what I've done. And yet she's still there for some reason, okay? When, when someone violated someone he cared about, he murdered them, <laughs> okay? After trying to grapple her physically, take her food, beg her to be physical with him and threaten that he's going to be hurt if she doesn't, he murders people and she stays. And then she goes with him to help find Obi-Wan. And here she admits that she loves him. Yeah. That's everything that has happened that builds up where she admits that she loves him. And then they get married. It's been maybe a week. I don't care that he's talking about how he's been thinking about her every single day for 10 years since he was a boy, which is also creepy. I don't (laughs) care that he's upset about dreaming about his mom because he wishes he could dream about Padme because that's also creepy. I don't care. Married? Not let's secretly date. Let's secretly make a binding covenant that we can't you know, wh- what like why their wedding could have been a plot point of the third one so that is the love story of anakin falling to the dark side that is right. that is so not what george lucas says it is where it's like supposed to be forbidden love or whatever there's nothing forbidden about it when you're being forbidden because someone is blatantly telling you what you're doing is not okay that's not forbidden love. That's don't assault me. Okay. And then there's the other one. I actually am middle ground on this. I agree that I, with more people that are positive about the relationship between Anakin and Obi-Wan, I think that their banter is pretty well reflexive of like Anakin being kind of like off and Obi-Wan trying to keep him on the straight and narrow. Yeah. And I see Obi-Wan trying to be empathetic about his mother and trying to show other people that he cares and reach out for support. 
it just seems like his hands are tied when it comes to what Anakin's doing. And they're split up for some reason. That's the biggest mistake is they're split up. They both should have been on the same mission. Right. It should have been protect the queen. And then it's like, we could split up for a second and I can go check out this clue, but then they should have stayed together and you would have had a lot more. You would have had a third party in the room to call Anakin out on what he's doing. Here's the thing. And it has taken me 10 years to pull this out. I went to go back and rewatch this because I started playing Lego Star Wars, the Skywalker saga. And I've read the dark horse adaptations, the graphic novel adaptations of the prequels. And you know what? Completely different. You don't have the performances there. You don't have the dialogue there. You have images and you have blanks that are filled in and it no longer, there's no longer the same dynamic of no. And Anakin does it anyways, because you only have one comic panel. You don't have as many edits. So it doesn't work the same way. You, you, you tell the story so differently that all of the imagination and the creativity and all the things that are there is just behind these lines of dialogue where you come up with the delivery in your own head and all of a sudden it's a lot more endearing and a lot less aggressive. Um, so my thing is I love, love a lot of Attack of the Clones. I love the concept of Obi-Wan investigating on a planet mostly soaked in rain, a secret army that's being built because someone is pulling strings to get two sides of an army to fight. And he's caught in the middle and he has to fight his way out because a clone at the center of it, who is also an assassin, is there. Like, that's such a cool thing. And the fight that they have, as terrible as some of the special effects are, it's just, it has so many little beats to let him have a unique personality as Obi-Wan. And it gives you a little bit more of a, a tangible threat from Jango Fett. Uh-huh. So that later, he act, it actually feels like there's weight when he dies. And, you know, Mace Windu, I, I love that whole concept. The idea of like a traditional sort of serialized, they're all trapped in an arena and they have to fight these monsters and they have to use their unique ways to do it where Anakin has this weird aggressive presence, but he also calms. He shows a lot of control and mastery over this big hulking figure. And that kind of reflects on him. Whereas Obi-Wan is just kind of skirting and snaking to the side and trying to get away from this other creature. And then there's this hilarious, absolutely amazingly hilarious shot of him jumping forward and jabbing with a spear back and forth. Like it's a fifties B movie. Love that shot. And then Padme who's getting, she thinks uh, before anyone, like one of my favorite lines in the movie is she seems to be on top of things because Obi-Wan is the pun king. And he, he sees that she's climbing to the top of the thing. And, you know, of course they had that guy, I guess, rip her clothing and make her midriff show because, okay. So I don't know. It just, and then the idea that it breaks out from such a small conflict into an all out initial battle in a war that escalation is fascinating to me. The whole concept of Count Dooku, I've said this before. After having seen Dracula, I cannot unsee seeds of what Count Dooku seems like he's supposed to be. Right. He looks just like Count Dracula. The aesthetic of Geonosis and the halls and things is just like the castles in Transylvania. Mm-hmm. Count Dracula does not present himself as an insidious murderer. He presents himself as a man of wealth and culture and 
it's a romance with someone and an interest in, uh, in, in a girl that drags him in, but he sort of sucks the life out of people around him. And you think about Count Dooku having the ability to like electrocute people and the way he tries to get in the head of people that again. So they talked in the, the Mr. Sunday movies uh, episode mm-hmm. two episode came out. Fantastic. Those two are doing such a great job of riding the line of what is enjoyable about the fandom of star Wars and what the criticisms are of the movies and stuff. And they're doing the games in between. It's great. Um, Count Dooku, according to some canon out there is um secretly actually trying to take down the Sith. Like if Obi-Wan were to join him, it would not be the same thing as where an apprentice tries to get someone and tries to kill their master. He genuinely thought like, cause he's not in on everything, you know, like he's aware that, that Darth Sidious is trying to lead two sides of a war, mm-hmm. but Count Dooku supposedly doesn't necessarily want all of this. You know, he, he's someone who used to be a Jedi, sees that the dark side is an advantage for him, but that doesn't mean that he wants to rule an empire the same way that the emperor does. And so there was an opportunity for Obi-Wan to be seduced to being something like Fritz. Okay. Well, you know, his, his name is not actually Fritz. It's Jonathan Harker. Something like that. In, uh, in, in the original Dracula. But that's the idea is you would have this, he wants this person to help him and, and would come in and see the dark evil Lord who would be exposed. I don't know. So yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, I don't have much to say about, uh, about attack of the glow and you pretty much cover covered it all. I just know that I don't, I don't like episode two at all. I'd rather not watch that movie ever again, if I could avoid it. But, uh, how do you feel about machete order? When I talk about episode two and three, that was the, one of the questions I wanted to ask. Uh, machete order. It, have you that, ever tried it? I haven't tried it, but I, I, I can see it being, being the, because it's something I haven't tried. It's probably the only way I'd go back to watch it again, to experience this thing that people say is the best way to watch the star Wars movies at this point, which is machete order. Well, someone, someone talked about how um, the closest you can get to machete order in um, the Lego Star Wars Skywalker saga Mm-hmm. was playing four and five, going back, playing the prequels, and then playing six. And since it's so easy to get through one of the levels, like they, they said that it worked, but they pointed out something about it that was really fascinating to me, which is it gives you a really smooth escalation of the Emperor. Episode one, nothing. Or episode four, nothing. Episode five, the Emperor is introduced as the dude behind Vader. Then you go to Palpatine is around, Sidious is around. He's not yet behind Vader. Yeah. Then he becomes the big explosive lightning casting freak show. Mm -hmm. And then you go right into episode six in the finale with the emperor. Right. Like that's Uh, a really appealing sounding thing. Yeah. I could see that working out. And uh, uh, Ian McDermott uh, does a fantastic job playing the emperor. Like Mm -hmm. ever since return of the Jedi. Yeah. And Uh, that's one of the special edition changes that I, I genuinely like. I like the voice of the original emperor unedited. Yeah, but I like Ian McDermott as the Emperor, so that's cool for episode yeah. five. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the that's one of the edits I don't mind too much about. But yeah, like uh, that that would be a reason for me to go back and watch episode two is for that experience that I've never had. But you and know, if, you, I, if you've never seen the movies in four K and you get the option to, there's a valid reason to check out how it looks and feels. You know. Yep. 
because Dolby Atmos tracks were added um, and worked on really hard for all three of those. Because here's the, okay, fascinating thing. And no, you know, I'm going to save this for episode three because I've already rambled for too long about this right now, but. Only about an hour. It's an interesting, fuck, sorry. (laughs) It's going to be held to edit, but whatever. It's an interesting story what version of the movies you're watching when you watch the physical copies versus Disney plus. Right. That's all I'll say. Okay. But uh, let's get on to the unbearable weight of massive talent. I haven't seen it. So people can feel free to not listen to my voice. The best way to understand this movie is you have have to understand Nicolas Cage because it's literally about him. And so, like, Nicolas Cage as an actor has always been an enigma for most people, as far as I can, as far as I'm aware, because he'll have movies where he clearly has great acting abilities. Like, recently, uh, Pig came out, where the whole movie is is a meditation on sadness and loss, and uh, the way it ends, it's either you learn to live with the loss or you die from it. Uh, it it's, a, it, it's a depressing movie and, and a depressing ending, but, you know, Nicolas Cage gives such a, a fantastic and a genuine performance for, for, for what it is. Like you get sucked into that movie. And then you have Vampire's Kiss where everything is off the walls. He gives the most uh, ridiculous is the only thing I, I can think of to describe that film uh, per- performance where he has this accent, like he's uh, British trying to pull off a, a California surfer boy accent. And it's, <laughs> it's the weirdest weirdest thing i still haven't finished that film i probably still i I probably need uh, uh, need to so people have this image of nicholas cage in their head and this movie is kind of playing with that in all sorts of ways because it starts out with nicholas cage on the downfall he's he's just read this script from a from a guy he's he's liked it uh they're they're talking about it uh it says you know i I could be in, the, I could be in this part. Like I, I could feel like this. Now I could do a reading if you want me to, Nick, Nick, I don't need to see you do a, a, a reading. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. You know what? Fuck it. I have decided I'm going to do the reading right now. And he goes into the reading and it's this off the wall, like actually actual dramatic per, per, performance. And it ends with the, with the writer going, wow. And it cuts. He thinks he's got the role. He gets a call and hey, Nick, uh, they, they liked it but they ultimately chose to go in a different direction. This is at his daughter's birthday party. So then he goes into a drunken rant about uh, how people don't respect talent when they have it. And he plays a song to his daughter in this drunken state. And he comes to the the decision that, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to retire from from acting. And then uh, Pedro Pascal invites him to the island. Partly mm-hmm. because he's a huge Nicolas Cage fan and partly because he wants to read his screenplay that he's written that he wants Nicolas Cage to be in. <laughs> of course. And so he goes to the island and they start to talk and they start to get this genuine friendship going, going on. And it, it, it's, it's weird. Because what happens is it gets to a point where Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage are starting to write a film as a way for Nicolas Cage to stay in the complex because the FBI has uh, hired him to investigate the kidnapping where he is. 
Mm-hmm. And the film they're talking about making is the film that you're watching. Okay, so Seven Psychopaths kind of stuff. It's so like it, it's 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 Nicolas Cage playing with the idea that that he's this like ups, like this this unknown actor. To be clear, this is a project that was made without them even being sure that Nicolas Cage was going to do it. I did not know that. There's also a joke floating around that um, Daniel Day Lewis they were going to try to get him to come out of retirement to play Nicolas Cage. Um, but if, as far as I understand, the actors were the, the, the directors or the writers, the, whatever the creative team behind this was just really thankful that Nicolas Cage was so on board with the idea. So the, the movie is built on Nicolas Cage as people see him from the outside. Yeah. Not really structured around Nicolas Cage telling a story that he cares about from the inside not that he doesn't care about it but like you know that yeah yeah but uh yeah like that's kind of what i got it's it's this guy who is losing touch with with his family because he's so obsessed with getting back on the wagon so they go through this whole movie and it's it's all about reconnecting and uh learning to listen and not and not have it all be about you because that's how nicholas cage is, is is acting like he he has to get to the next big thing so he's back on top he has to be the one who is influential he he's showing his, his daughter movies that that he's liked and giving her lectures on it because he thinks that she, that, that that she's into it while not giving her a word in edgewise to talk about anything that she's into but it, it's it's kind of like this nonsensical off-the-wall action movie with a a like like a, with with character and, and introspection shoved into mm-hmm. the middle of it and it's it's a weird kind of blend of thing that I've never seen before, and I, I kind of want to see it again. I don't know if I made any sense with anything that I said, but whatever. Um, I mean, I would expect a movie like this about Nicolas Cage to make someone feel that way. So it feels like it is what it should be. Okay. So that's cool. I'm really excited to see it. So I really want people to support this and um, everything everywhere all at once. So I'm gonna I'm gonna see that soon. Um, so, the fog. The fog is an amazing, simple 1980s campfire story about ghost pirates, and I love the tone of it. And it's so simple, and it's so to the point, and atmospheric, and fun. The fog, they, 2005. Did they ruin it? It's upsetting. <laughs> it's upsetting. It's it's you know trade in um the lead from halloween three and jamie lee curtis meeting together and hooking up Mm -hmm. for uh people like generic 2000 stars like people you'd see at a house of wax or something like that Mm -hmm. just like partying on a boat and then they die the fog there are cgi ghosts that jump out of the fog and and kill people um every single time they did anything ever that was practical that they thought was interesting or like a stunt they -hmm. put it in slow motion but then they do rapid quick cut editing between the slow motion shots to do the 2000 scare you with fast editing thing so you take all the moments of suspense and just make them the worst possible. 
And then you take this story, which was just a simple, they, they betrayed and let the pirates die. The pirates come back and screw up the town. Yeah. Murder everybody. And they turned it into a different, more layered uh, mythology of there were lepers on board this boat. And so the ghosts are actually lepers and they were trying to settle in this town. And because people didn't want the leper colony to settle in the town, they betrayed them, took their gold and fortune in order to build the town and burned the boat and let it fall into the water. And so the ghosts get justified revenge, but also one baby was like the descendant of someone of their lineage that survived and was taken in by one of the families. And so the ghosts are killing everyone, but targeting specifically the families responsible for betraying the boat. But then the girl that grew up, that's supposed to be the Jamie Lee Curtis of the movie Uh is like a reincarnation slash descendant of the guy's wife who led the boat. And at the very end of the movie, she turns into a ghost and leaves with him out of nowhere. So you're saying the the only good thing about this movie is that John Carpenter got paid because someone remade his movie. Uh, Well, actually, frustratingly, a bit more than that, because if it was a benign, terrible movie, I could just not care that it exists and not support it. But it looks like from the images that the production team broke their backs, making this look like something that would have done service to the tone of the original. And the actress, uh, Selma Blair, uh, in Hellboy, she plays uh, the fire starting uh, girl member of the team. Do you know Uh who I'm talking about? Yes. She is the radio station operator. Okay. And she's freaking awesome until her car gets knocked off the road by a CGI ghost. She gets attacked by a CGI ghost in the car. You know, it's if you had made this movie, just use all the money you had for a remake, but kept the story exactly the same and just justified the remake by shifting the focus from the Jamie Lee Curtis bit and the people in the church uh-huh. to the radio operator trying to get across town to her son who's with them in the church uh-huh. and just made it a ride. It would have been awesome. Yes. But by what it's, it's, it sounds like they missed the point of, of what made the fog like scary. Well, I don't even know if I have that right about what made the fog scary, but I, I know why I enjoyed it. And I know that the editor and the director did not understand what made this work. If you were to put everything in order and you like had, instead of splicing the backstory as like an unfolding mystery across the movie, you just let it play out chronologically up front. And then you let it be like, so you know that these pirates are coming to kill people and you let the tension build and have those pay off little bit by little bit. Yeah. They had the production value to have that be pretty cool, but they just want to show off these flashy tricks and do this stupid stuff. Like, right. The fog doesn't need that. Like you get, like from the original fog, you got fear just from the fog rolling in. Like there, there, there's something ominous and unknown about it. You actually don't get to see any of the ghost pirates until I think the very end of the movie. The uh, priest, drunk priest, right? A guy who knows some of the secrets and stuff like that. He's younger in this movie. Yeah. His death. He's standing in a hall, in, in a town hall, uh, between glass cases that have like model ships in them. Mm-hmm. And 
the death on paper is awesome. The the fog rolls in mm-hmm. and shatters the glass inward at him. Four panes to the front left and right and back left and right of him mm-hmm. in at him. And so he would just be like puffer fished, inverted, spiked with glass right. and drop dead. See, and I can see John Carpenter directing that in, in, in a way that makes it gruesome. They broke all of the glass practically in slow motion, then use CGI to quick cut around the glass actually passing through his body. So the part that would have impact is digital and fake looking. And the part that looks cool is in slow motion for dramatic effect and falls apart. And that's the whole movie is you're just watching moment of and You're like, wait, but you had these pieces in front of you. Why wasn't that cooler? Yeah, like like literally, they could take uh, the phone booth scene from from 1984's The Blob, I want to say, or 1988's The Blob. Mm-hmm. It, it's a similar concept. Mm-hmm. Just 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 recreate that with shattering glass, and and you have a scary scene. It it doesn't take it doesn't take that much effort. There was just there was just this trend in 2005 where they and this is partially the fault of the prequels. You know, it's the ingenuity of we can do what we want and not actually put any stuntmen or actors at risk. So it's safe, but it looks real, quote unquote, so we can do it. It's, it's, it's that frustration of a movie where you can actually see how and why it could have been better and what the potential was and then fails on it and constantly reminds you that it's not doing as good as it could be. So that's the fog. All right. Would I want to watch it again? No, but I sort of kind of, if I did do fan editing traditional, which I know I seem like I'm talking about forever in these episodes, um, I would like to go in and put the sequences in order and see if I can take out some of the choppy editing and Mm -hmm. see if I could turn it into like an hour long ride. Okay. So I guess I'm, I'm back into. You are here for the gauntlet for Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness. Curtis, is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness good or bad? Well, as we all know, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is directed by Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi has a very particular way of directing and editing his films. Uh, And I know that there is a faction of people out there that don't like the way that those films look. So, depending on how you feel about Sam Raimi and his editing, could, could determine how you view this movie. Ooh, nice. What was your favorite scene? Oh God. Um, there's a scene close to the end where it looks like Sam Raimi is trying to capture a bit of fun that he had with movies like, yeah. Fine. Go ahead. So there is the scene where uh, Doctor Strange is 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 a uh, is dreamwalking in in his own corpse, and he's literally like in this decaying form, and he looks like a deadite that has yeah. all of his functions. Yeah, he's in the and, trailer again. They've done a yeah. terrible job at keeping spoilers. I know. Yeah, but the way that that the way that that he uh, gets this this like uh, cloak of 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 uh, the souls of the damned as he flies to uh, Scarlet Witch. It, it's the way that that scene goes on is, is 
like some of my some some of the best filmmaking I've seen in in these Marvel movies because they're so so similar uh, at um at, um just 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 editing and and cinematography wise that that whenever I see anything new and unique especially from someone like Sam Raimi it it, it gotcha. just jumps out. Gotcha, that's cool. So, what would you take out of the movie? No, fuck nothing. Take nothing out. I, I get that's a joke, but who's the uh, best actor? Who's the worst actor? So we all know that Scarlet Witch is is the villain in this movie, and she has to uh, portray the role of mother who's lost her children in a way that makes you empathize with her while also fully understanding that, that she's the villain. And it's completely believable for me. <laughs> Shit. Whatever. Worst actor. Worst actor. Baron Mordo left the weakest impression on me, mostly because I, I felt like I was just seeing the same guy again. Same guy in what way? Like I, di- I didn't see a difference in his character. Um, give your favorite quote from the movie. There is a line that is said multiple times throughout the film that direct that goes directly to the core of Doctor Strange as a character, and it's acknowledged as that in the movie. Someone in the movie acknowledges a specific quote as the core of Doctor Strange as a character, and what is that quote? Well, Doctor Strange acknowledges it in the movie, and the quote is, you always have to be the one holding the knife. Okay, that's vague enough while giving the line and spe- specified in this objectively happens in the movie that someone acknowledges it, that you're good to go. Uh, what's the movie missing? More Bruce Campbell. Even though I agree. Um, <laughs> what'd you enjoy from the story? Uh, so yeah, that uh, there are more elements that are more traditional to the horror genre in this than are in other Marvel movies. And all right, what did you, did you learn anything about making movies from watching this? Talking about taking inspiration from a unique director. Is there anything? Uh, Sam Raimi has this uh, thing where he, where, where when, when, when he gets this idea and how he wants to shoot something, he just does it. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, he's going with his gut. And usually when he goes with his gut, he's right on how to, uh, ah, shit, whatever. Uh, basically, I, I, I Sam, the, the ways that Sam Raimi directs and, and edits a movie, especially with, 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 with how he moves the camera a, 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 a around the scene, how it's sporadic and feels uncontrolled, and have just the camera movement itself imply what the scene is meant to convey is something that Sam mm-hmm. Raimi does really well. Okay, cool, cool. What would make you watch this again? This gives me a, this movie gives me a particular feeling. Uh, I, I, this goes back to a, 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 a past question, but uh, I am a big fan of horror. And this is a Marvel movie that helps to scratch that horror itch, even if I'm, if, even if I want to watch a Marvel movie. So that is something that would make me want to watch it again. Yeah, I, that's fair. Would Nicolas Cage have made this movie better, especially now that you have the fresh, you know, uh, wildness of the, of the injection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ew. Um, ew. 
Anyways. I don't know if he would have made it better. I can see him playing a variant of a superhero in this movie, though. Dude, which superhero? You can see him play a variant superhero. That's an objective take. You can see him playing a variant of a superhero. Mm-hmm. It'd be very hard to argue that is a subjective opinion. Like, I can't see him as a variant of a superhero. Like, you know, that. Yeah. So you're good. Okay. Who? Okay. So, uh, so you've been spoiled. You know, the guy who, uh, who, who blows Black his- Bolt, Haley Atwell, Captain America, Xavier. So Black Bolt then. Yeah. Like, Nick Cage can be a, a, a very, like, physical a- actor. I, I can see him playing that role pretty well. All right. I got, a, I got one big question for you, Curtis. Go ahead. Using 2017's Power Rangers as a reference, how obvious and in your face is the X-Men theme? Uh, incredibly. It is. Like, it is. Is it, it like the Power Rangers? It is instantly recognizable. Okay. Like it's a, it's it. I mean, it, it's slow, but it's it it, it it's in the same tone. It, it's like it's played slowly. It's like da 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 da, and it's it's it, it's when you see Xavier walk in. It's exactly the X Men theme. That's cool. All right. Well, um, you know, it's a huge exciting thing. I understand that Wanda comes in and basically murders everybody in 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 very violent, twisted ways. Um, like Reed Richards, John Krasinski. Yeah reminiscent of uh drax he's been compared to the way drax gets cubed by uh thanos um the way he gets like unspooled and all that Uh uh-huh and um i i'm not sitting it's not sitting right with me what everyone talks about with bruce campbell about how he like benedict Cumberbatch gets irritated with him and then he's beating himself up for the entire movie into the post credits oh so uh he he wants money for the pizza balls that the girl stole and when, he, uh-huh. and when he's not shutting up about it, he strange just puts a spell on him and he starts to beat himself up like he does in the Evil Dead Which movies. Which is great. Yes, because you know that this is Bruce Campbell showing off his ability to look not in control of his body. But it also is a really dick move from Doctor Strange, the quote-unquote Sorcerer Supreme. Right. So it's like, he's a hero, right? Right, but that also leads to one of my favorite lines in the movie. Which is in the post 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 credit scene because it's it's Bruce Campbell just 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 sitting there resigned to the fact that he's just constantly hitting himself and then it ends. He's just it's done. It's, looking straight into the screen, it's over. Cut to black. Oh, that's cute. I heard there's a couple of different uh, fourth wall breaks. There there might be. That was that's Wanda the- staring right into the camera and like yeah. Eh. But uh, no, but like Wanda wanting to get her her her, her, uh, her her kids back, like I, in no uncertain way, I I completely un- understand her her um, uh, motivation and what she's trying to do. It's hard to put anyone in the wrong, almost like like clearly Scarlet Witch is the villain, and clearly you get the impression that that Wanda is not in full control of herself because the 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 the, the book has taken over, in a sense, it's it, it's a corrupting factor. But uh, like, I have never seen this much blood in a Marvel movie since Sam Raimi's Spider-Man one. Was there a ton of blood in Spider-Man one that I don't know about? I I, I may be being a little bit hyperbolic, but like the point is that Marvel has been a little bit, uh, at, at least Disney's been not so keen on showing anything too uh, gory lately. 
to the point where some of their movies just feel uh, stale as far as the action goes. But when when Cap when when uh, when Captain Carter is literally cut in half by her own shield and it's covered in her blood when it stamps into a pillar. Yeah, yeah. And they don't shy away from that. But that's like more than anything that's in the first Spider-Man, you know? Because here's the thing. The thing about Doctor Strange 2016, I think that movie was massively underrated and Mm -hmm. made some very clever um, choices in reacting to common criticisms of Marvel movies at the time. Mm -hmm. Specifically, that being that there's always a big explosion in the end and there's no consequences to the violence. And yet in Doctor Strange 2016, yes, they come up with the way of reversing time, but like you see Wong's corpse impaled in that movie. Yeah. And, you know, the way they take out Dormammu is a very inventive, different kind of thing. The negative reviews that I'm seeing with this is like, it's so obsessed with being a part of a Marvel blueprint and another step in the story that it loses a sense of being its own story. I don't know. Some people are contradicting themselves. So like I'm on Rotten Tomatoes, right? Yeah. Cause that sounds got, completely wrong to me. I got one person saying it feels like a cog in a bigger machine. Uh, this one says this feels studio mandated. This one feels uh, it's trying to be unique, but it, it becomes banal and underwhelming. Where's the strangeness? Um, uh, more over the top spectacle than it has at heart Um, and again these are just the negative ones but like but it's bizarre to see people saying two things that seem like they contradict each other at the same time one of them being that the movie isn't different enough to escape a Marvel formula Uh and then at the same time saying that it's a cog in a in a bigger machine like like a marvel formulaic movie is good guy bad guy good guy beats bad guy and there's an explosion yeah that's right yeah which is not this movie that's what i'm saying is is it's very bizarre to see i I don't know and and also this kind of sticks to the the tradition of well, the one tradition that we have with 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 Doctor Strange, where the conflict isn't solved with violence, it's 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 literally Wanda has to stop herself because the the person who is able to travel through dimensions puts Scarlet Witch in front of her kids at her worst moment and makes her realize that no matter what she does, she will never be their mom, no matter how much she wants to be. So she has to stop herself and close everything off. So. Why are people calling this movie bloated? I don't know. On the one on the one hand I have a very clear idea that this movie is Wanda discovers that like dreams on some level are are access to a multiverse and so she knows because she dreams about her kids they exist out there somewhere and she's looking for them. Yes. And so she wants her kids, people stand in the way, she's willing to kill for them to stand in the way. Where in the meantime, Doctor Strange is caught up trying to return America Chavez to her own universe, and he gets caught up in the mix of it and is trying to stop Wanda from killing people. Yeah. So it's just two of them have very different reasons to just be on a path of one versus the other. Very simple. Yes. Why are people calling it bloated? The only thing that I can think of is the uh, universe that they go into. 
I, I actually don't know. I, I don't think it's bloated at all. Is it just people distracted by that they put a bunch of cameos in there, so they think that means there's maybe? Because like the way that I get like like this has nothing nothing to do with the quality of the movie, but I I I, I get the feeling that when when they approached Sam Raimi with with this, Sam Raimi said, "Okay, I'll do it, but I want to kill people," and they gave him a universe to kill people in. Well, no, because remember, and this is a big thing. We are going to talk about this movie again when I see it. Sure. Scott Derrickson was going to do this movie, and Robert Cargill had written was writing a script with him. The same team that wrote the first one, the same team that had been making PG-13 horror movies successful forever, same team that's coming out with The Black Phone with Ethan Hawke later on this year. Okay. So they were pulled off due to a disagreement over creative vision Mm -hmm. and Sam Raimi was put on. And now all of a sudden it looks like Sam Raimi got to have this personal stamp. But then you have this undercurrent of people saying it does seem like it was, it has its hands tied behind its back by Marvel and other people arguing, no, it's entirely creative and original. Like, it seems very at odds. Yeah, and I, I like people are seeing two different movies. Yeah, I, I don't get it. It's it's very clearly a Sam Raimi movie, no matter how you look at it. Like even the way that that Doctor Strange is 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 introduced in uh, into fighting this this like giant star uh, mo- mo- uh, monster that's that's out to kidnap yeah. America Chavez. The way he he looks like the thing from the Suicide Squad, right? Yeah, go ahead. But the way that that he gets in into his costume is he falls off of a building with his cape kind of come coming around him, and then a, as he's falling down, he gets into his Doctor Strange outfit. It feels very rem, it feels reminiscent of his Spider Man films in that way. Hmm. See, um, I I am I'm excited to see this, and I am going to support it because. The first Doctor Strange was written off by a ton of people as a knockoff of Iron Man. I mean, and, them having similar personalities doesn't make it a knockoff. Well, and also you have him go and find like Eastern influences that help his unique talents as a particular kind of person. And like, like he's a weapons manufacturer, so he uses weapons manufacturing to become right. an anti-weapons manufacturer where he's a a scientist who uses science and his mind that made him a successful science to become a wizard. Like there are definite parallels between the movies. Sure. But what people miss is there, those similarities make contrast. Yeah. Iron Man blows up the bad guy. Dr. Strange talks to him. Iron Man goes to Gomira and kills people who are taking his weapons. Dr. Strange refuses violence and tries to trap people and be a pacifist. Right. They go through different character development phases, despite story beats being similar. They're reflections of one another that made me really happy when they didn't get along in Infinity War. Right. And there's sort of a passing of the torch. It's like this whole story is happening in front of me and I feel like nobody sees it because there's a passing of the torch where Doctor Strange literally takes over as the mentor for Spider-Man when Iron Man is not there. Uh Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, he's not like mentoring him necessarily in the movie, but they're putting him in this role where Benedict Cumberbatch and Doctor Strange, pretty much rightfully so, is the figurehead guiding the core of activity. Right. Like based off of uh, Shang-Chi, it it looks like Benedict, it it, it looks like Wong is, is, is becoming the new Nick Fury of whatever is going on. Right. And um, Doctor Strange in What If? is the center person who comes up with the team that takes on multiverse threats. And you've seen him in this movie, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's, 
it's so bizarre to me that there's like the the advantage of this unique thriving series of movies is that there is always a big story happening in the background of these little stories and I, I know people don't care enough sometimes to follow through, but it always feels like there's this glass barrier between people who are fans of comic book storytelling and fans of individual movie storytelling. And it makes them watch two different movies. See, but that's, this is why I, I like Sam Raimi doing these comic book movies. Cause he's the way he had that, 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 that just based on films that he's done before. Like, like uh, I, I now I still haven't seen it, but from what I hear, dark man, despite not being based on, on, a, on a comic book, is very much a comic book movie. Yeah. And that's directed and written by Sam Raimi. So he understands yeah. visually what a comic book movie could, could, could look like and how, it can, and, and how it can flow. Yeah. And that, that shows really well in Doctor Strange and the Spider-Man movies that he's done. You know, uh, again, I just want people to know... Um, you know, everyone is entitled to the subjective opinion. There really is no objective truth. The pursuit of it is an unattainable goal that will keep this podcast living as long as anyone gives a care to listen. And so we thank all of you for listening. I uh, remember we are a branch in the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. So head over to the Music City Drive-In for all other entertainment needs to be met. And uh, I guess when I do my own review of this, it'll be its own multiverse thing. I'm Eric. You can find me at high contrast FLM on Twitter and find handles to my other stuff there. And I am Curtis. You can follow me on Twitter at nineties gamer four Oh seven and on Twitch at Merrick underscore tainment, where I do video game streams. And while I do those streams, I drink whiskey. It's always a fun time. All right. You got to end quote or whiskey's delicious. Yeah.